2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to notice the first ten verses. Paul writes, We then, as workers together with Him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, <clears throat> by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, <clears throat> excuse me, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. <clears throat> Back on May the 10th, 1940, at 5.30 in the morning, Nazi Germany began a massive attack against Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France. Defending those countries were soldiers of the British Expeditionary Force along with the French, Belgium, and Dutch Allied armies. After just a few weeks of battle, though, Hitler's armies had conquered Holland, they had conquered Luxembourg, and Belgium. Paris fell on June the 14th. Three days later, the French requested an armistice. The following day, June the 18th, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill spoke to the House of Commons about the disastrous turn of events in Europe amid the stark realization that Britain now stood alone against the seemingly unstoppable might of Hitler's military machine. Now, I do not think that we are so different from Churchill's England. I do not think that his fight was even as difficult as our own. After all, we stand against our greatest foe, Satan. We as a church stand alone against him without any help from the outside world, just as at that time Britain stood alone against Germany. Satan, like Germany, presents himself as an unstoppable foe, but we must never give up. However, like Churchill and Britain did, we need to come together and stand against our enemy, never allowing Satan to have the, the, the opportunity to defeat us, always having this same fearless courage that we see and did see in the Allied forces, which brought them to victory eventually. I want us to listen to the final few sentences 
of Churchill's famous speech of encouragement. This is what he said. What General Vega called the Battle of France is over. He said, I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our British life and our long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the light of perverted science. His final statement. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth Last for a thousand years, men will say, this was our finest hour. We're entering an exciting new time in the history of the White Oak Church of Christ. We are about to begin a great campaign to reach out to the souls of our community. And we're going to be successful. And I think this is our finest hour. It better be. As we begin our work this year, and if the Lord allows us time in the future, I believe we'll be able to look back on this period of time as we begin this year. And I think we can, with all confidence, say this was our finest hour. We have the the necessary abilities, we have the desire, we have the love, and we have all that we need that can cause us to move forward in our greatest hour. Though we have what it takes to be successful, we still must put forth the required effort, accept the sacrifices that must come to make this our finest hour. And I know we will. But why is this our finest hour? This is going to be our finest hour because it must be our finest hour. And it all begins with our finest hour having The greatest salvation. That's our first point. This will be our finest hour because we are partners. That's what Paul said. We're partners with each other and with God. And when we have such great partnerships in the world, there's no way that we can be defeated. And we are the representatives of God. And because we are the representatives of God, we must be the proper ones. Paul spoke to that. He told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, He said, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, and in purity. The whole purpose of God's partnership with us and ours with each other is to take the message of salvation to the lost. That's the whole point of being here. When Paul used the word you in verse 1 of our passage, he wasn't talking to the world in general. He was talking to Christians that formed the church of Christ in Corinth. It wasn't a general plea to the world. 
He was talking to those who had already obeyed the gospel. Those who had been saved. Now at the time of their conversions, we notice that the Corinthians had received the grace of God. That's how we receive God's grace, isn't it? By obeying the gospel. And Paul spoke of that same grace to Titus. He said, recorded in Titus 2, beginning with verse 11, he said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul spoke about that great offering of reconciliation and pardon presented in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about, this great opportunity. His first coming to earth was for our justification so that we might be able to enter into a covenant relationship with God so that we might also be able to carry that message to the rest of the world. And like those in Corinth, when they submitted to God's commandments, they received and enjoyed and accepted God's grace. But there's something we all need to understand. A good beginning does not necessitate a good ending. We might start off well. We might end poorly. Paul asked those in Rome, he said, or rather Corinth, he said, you, you, you ran well. What hindered you from finishing the race? Now there were several things that Paul was worried about. He was concerned about the welfare of his brethren in Corinth. What if they embraced the false teachers who had come their way? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. What if they had turned to a false gospel we see in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4? After all, that happened in Galatia. They had turned to a false gospel, Galatians 1, 6 through 7. Paul said, I marvel that you are so soon removed. He said, you've turned to another gospel, but it's not the gospel. They were in danger of the, the faithful failing to continually present themselves to God as a living sacrifice. They were in danger of protesting or of uh, not protesting against the workers of Satan. They were in danger of just saying nothing and doing nothing and becoming bound with non-believers, 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18. There was a great danger of that. If they did not stand up at this time when Paul wrote them, making that their finest hour, they were in danger of losing all. If they failed to perfect holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7, Verse 1, they would have received the grace of God in vain. And he urged them. In fact, he begged them, do not receive God's grace in vain. Do not receive something that is so precious and then turn your back on it and lose all that is attached to it. If this is going to be our finest hour, it will be because of our partnership with and for God. But, we must not waste the grace given to us. We must not take God's grace in vain. It's going to be our greatest hour, our finest hour, because of the present. Notice what Paul said. In verse 2 he exclaimed, Behold, now 
is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He didn't say tomorrow or the next day or the week after or a month from now or next year. He wasn't encouraging them, make this your finest hour next year or in ten years. He said, make it your finest hour now. In the present, today is the day of salvation. Today is the accepted time. He began that verse with a statement from God Himself explaining why today is the day of salvation and the reason the Corinthians and we should respond to that appeal. God said this, For He saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Now Paul is quoting from the great prophet Isaiah. Thus saith the Lord, Isaiah 49, verse 8, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, And in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Now this is in the section of Isaiah described as the suffering servant poems. Several chapters cover that. They describe what the Messiah would do when He finally came to earth, the processes in which He would uh, submit himself so that he could become our servant, becoming the sacrifice of all who ever lived up to that point and all who would ever live, including us. It was acceptable because it was the right time for God and man to usher in Christ into the world. That makes today the day of salvation. Tomorrow is gone. Nothing we can do about tomorrow or uh, yesterday is gone, nothing we can do about that. Tomorrow has yet to come. It may not even arrive. But as we look at the suffering servant poems, we see how the Father promised His aid and His encouragement and His support to the servant as He carried out His mission here on earth. And because of that, it's our finest hour. Having quoted from Isaiah, Paul then applied the passage to the present at that time, and it is just as applicable to us today. Because the wonderful era promised and prophesied had come, it provided for reconciliation, allowing mankind to once again be in a very personal relationship with God. And when we, when we look at it and we understand that it is there for our taking, It boggles the mind to think that someone would just pass up and give away, even once having attained it, these great and precious promises. Again, that's why now is the day of salvation. Why now is the acceptable time. The term salvation is presented in three different ways in the Bible. You have the past, the present, and the future meaning of salvation. You have, I was saved. You have... I am being saved, or I hope to be saved. In this context of our passage, Paul is talking about that present tense. I am being saved. And he wanted to encourage them to continue with that. Don't stop being saved because we can leave Christ. John talks about that in 1 John 1, and and that is such a wonderful verse. We have to continue to walk in the light. We have to continue being saved as we prepare for our greatest hour, our finest hour. We have to take advantage of the greatest salvation 
This must be our finest hour. But how do we do that? How do we go about making this our finest hour? Well, we have to start with the greatest service, the finest hour of service. How can we make that hour of service? How do we, how do we continue with that? I would suggest to us that we begin with first not antagonizing those who we hope to reach. We need to look at our methods, don't we? We need to understand how we go about spreading the gospel. Like the apostles and like the statement Paul made, we must never offend unnecessarily through our evangelistic effort. Paul addressed that. The word giving found in verse 3 indicates a continual habitual practice. Don't give offense. Don't Don't make that your practice in your evangelistic effort. The phrase no offense means to place something in the pathway of someone knowing it will cause them to stumble. However, we need to understand what the apostle intended. He didn't mean because the gospel is offensive and it is very offensive to the world that we don't teach the gospel. That's not what he's talking about. We teach the gospel just as it is written. Paul told the Ephesians to teach the truth in love. So that's what we do. We teach the truth in love, not in, in an antagonistic way, not in a, in a sense that uh, we think we have all the answers. Well, God has all the answers, right? That's who we guide people to. People are going to be offended by the gospel, 1 Corinthians 1, 23. It's impossible that they will not be. But he's talking about unnecessary offense. He's talking about not allowing the world to lay blame on us, not to be found guilty of a self-righteousness that he is speaking against. After all, the work is difficult enough, isn't it, without borrowing trouble, giving someone the excuse to not listen to the gospel. Our greatest service begins with not antagonizing those who we want to reach, but it also continues with approval. Paul talked about approval. In the first part of verse 4, he said, But in all things, approving ourselves as ministers of God. We must approve of ourselves and be approved of by God. That's what he means. I think it may be a little easier to understand this statement if we rearrange it in more familiar uh, construction in the English language. He might have said this, As the ministers of God, we approve of ourselves in all things. Now, just because someone approves of themselves does not mean that God has approved. We're talking about as we measure ourselves according to the canon of the Bible. According to what God teaches, do I approve of myself? That's why Paul told the Corinthians, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Know ye not whether you be in the faith? Of course we know. We look at our lives stacked up against the Bible and we understand whether we're right or not. We are the only ones other than God that truly knows that. So we must have approval of ourselves. Now this is a contrast from verse 3, right? Instead of giving someone the opportunity to discredit the church because of our actions, we should do everything we can 
to be in approval of God and approve ourselves. And we live as faithful Christians by doing that. That's how we receive God's approval. That's how we receive each other's approval and our own approval. And the world will see our lifestyles. And they'll notice that. They'll know whether we're being hypocritical or self-righteous. But if this is going to be our finest hour of salvation, because of our finest hour of service, it must be rooted in and based upon our finest hour of studying. To be successful, we must have fortitude. We must gain what we need to gain through a diligent study of the Bible. Where do we learn about the finest salvation? From where do we learn about the finest service? There's only one place, the Word of God. We have to go to the Word of God. To preach a message of salvation, a message of service, we have to know the message, right? We have to be able to uh, describe that and relay that. If this is our finest hour, and it must be, we have to be prepared to extend that message to those around us. We have to know. We have to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Far too many people in the church today are not able to do that. Paul said we approve of ourselves before God. And we do that because of our endurance of faithfulness. God sees that. Now, there are two Greek words that have been translated patience or endurance. One indicates a patience or an endurance of putting up with people. It's the self-restraint that, that keeps us from rendering evil for evil or being so quick to hastily retaliate against someone who has wronged us. Now, that's not what Paul is using in this sentence, in this uh, passage. The other word means to put up with things. Well, if we're not putting up with people, we're putting up with things for sure, aren't we? But what things is he talking about? He's talking about having the fortitude to stand up under the pressure of adversity, under the pressure of hardship and of trials. Now, we're very fortunate in our land. We don't face those. At least we do not now. But it may come. But if it comes... And we want this to be our finest hour. We must have fortitude. And there's only one place we learn that. Christ emphasized the qualities that Christians must have. Notice what He said in Matthew 10, 22. He said, And ye shall be hated of all men for My name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. There's that word. Putting up with things the persecutions that were going to come, the trials that were going to come, the hardships that would be placed upon those people because of their faith in God. Luke 8, 8, 15, in the parable of the sower, he said, but that one, that, but that on the good ground are they which in an honest and a good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. They kept it and they endured. See, we have to understand... Where did they learn how to keep it and endure? Where did they gain that fortitude? From the message. They studied it. It was delivered to them orally. But it was still the message. It was still God's Word. They still had to study it. They had to understand it. 
As we look at this passage that Paul has written through verse 5, he speaks of the thing, uh, the things that require fortitude in, <clears throat> in order for us to be able to endure. And that's learned through proper study. We cannot get away from a study of the Bible if we want to be faithful to God. Now beginning in verse 6, Paul talks of things that not only require fortitude, but that also require faithfulness. If we're going to have the finest hour of study that all these other things are founded in, we must have faithfulness. Now there are character traits such as endurance described for us. He said we had to be pure. Now that can refer to morality. That can refer to purity of motives and is a mindset that makes men and women careful to keep their minds clean and their hands clean. That's what he's talking about. Solomon said this, Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. If we're going to be pure, and we're going to gain from the Word of God what He intends, we have to be faithful. We have to be pure. Paul reminded the Thessalonians of his pure behavior. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 He made this statement and he told them, You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. See, it was, it was a part of Paul's life. It was a part of his life, no matter the circumstances, no matter the situation, no matter who was around, he lived blamelessly before God. That doesn't mean he was sinless. It means he was blameless. There's a big difference. When he made mistakes, he recognized those. He asked God to forgive him. You recall in Galatians, recorded for us, when Paul said he withstood Peter to the face, he allowed the context of the situation, he allowed the circumstances to allow him to behave in such a way that he should have been blamed. And that's what Paul said, wasn't it? I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Paul talked about his knowledge. Knowledge is what we receive from God, isn't it? Ephesians 3, verse 3, he said, How that by revelation... He made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words. Well, that's Paul's knowledge. That's how Paul gained his knowledge, through inspiration and revelation. But what about us? Though Paul gained his information through revelation and inspiration, it was still the message. It was still the Word of God. He still had to contemplate it. He still had to study it, and he did. you recall when he was in prison? And he asked Timothy to bring him a coat, but bring the scrolls and the books? He wanted to study the Word of God. But fortunately for us, we don't have to have revelation and inspiration today because there isn't any. The very next verse, Ephesians 3 verse 4, He says, Whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. When they read the letter, they could come to the understanding and know the mystery that had been revealed to Paul. It was no longer a mystery, was it? It had been revealed, but they had to study. They had to have their foundation in the Word of God. That's where we gain our knowledge, from a faithful study of the Word of God. Another Christian virtue that Paul spoke of is patience. Or the 
ability to endure undeserved injustices, insults, evil deeds without retaliating. Now that's difficult. That's hard. But we can do it. It's a continually growing process of maturation as we study the Word and and we apply it to our lives and we put it in our minds. See, when we exhibit patience, we reflect God's character, don't we? Think about it. How patient God must be. Our world today is a terrible place in, in some places. It's not nearly as bad as during the days of Noah yet. And can you imagine the great patience God had to exhibit during Noah's day? So why would we believe that, that we would not have to exhibit patience? Paul asked a question, Romans 2 verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? The goodness of God. What about God is good? Well, he's patient. He's long-suffering. He endures. But what, 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 from what is he patient? What are the situations in which he is long-suffering? What does he endure? Well, you know, we, we look back at that word and we said that it's used in two senses, patience or endurance. The one in which Paul's talking to the Corinthians is you put up with things. That's not what God endures. God doesn't put up with things. He puts up with people. And we are those people. And so when He demonstrates His patience toward us, we need to also demonstrate that patience. Again, we recall His great patience before the flood. Peter talked about it in 1 Peter 3, 19-20. When the long-suffering of God during the days of Noah, right? While the ark was a-preparing. Kindness is an attitude of graciousness. Paul spoke of that. It's a graciousness toward each other, right? We must be kind. This is going to be our greatest hour, our finest hour. We must search for ways to be helpful and beneficial to others. That doesn't mean we allow people to take advantage of us. But what that does mean is that we have a sweetness of nature and we're kind to each other and to those around us. Paul said all those things were possible. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that. I believe all of that is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. He does lead and direct us. But we have to understand in what way He does that. He's not directly leading us or instructing us. He does it in a very unique way. And He does it through the written Word of God. But He's always led in that way. Not the written Word, but the spoken Word. It's always been the Word of God is how the Holy Spirit has led people. Paul commanded this, Ephesians 5, 19. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So how do I do that? Well, he explains that to us in Colossians 3, 16. He said, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. That's how we're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit will never lead us unless the Word of Christ is in our lives. It's in our minds. It makes us who we are. It builds our character. It adjusts our character. It makes us what God needs us to be. All the characteristics that faithful Christians possess, all these that Paul's talking about, 
that's going to lead to the finest hour of anyone at any time is all based in love. He, he called it unfeigned love, didn't he? Uh, love without hypocrisy. That's what he's talking about. Christ warned against hypocrisy. God's love for us is not hypocritical. The, the apostles, the disciples, they made it a priority to have genuine love in their lives, just as we must. Paul said in verse 7 of our passage, By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the left hand, or on the right hand and on the left. Well, he's talking about the, the gospel of Christ, the apostolic teachings. That's our armor. That's the tools that we uh, use, the tools that we, that we uh, wage our wars with. We can't underestimate the power of Bible study. Once we begin to understand the proper way to study the Bible, when we, we dig down into it and we truly want to understand the meaning, it opens up a whole other world to us of understanding. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling properly the Word of God. Again, those characteristics along with the Bible, those are our tools, those are our weapons that we wage this war against our foe. When we look in Ephesians 6 verses 14 through 17, he lays out those tools. They're all spiritual tools, aren't they? He talks about love, talks about faith, talks about diligence, talks about study. He talks about all of those things. The writer of Hebrews added, Hebrews 4 verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrows and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's how powerful the Word of God is. If we take the Word of God into our lives, we can't help but make this our finest hour. He goes on to talk about the things that could happen and that would happen. He's preparing them. He's talking about those things that would require patience and endurance and, and faithfulness and love toward God. He, he warns them of that, those things. They would endure character assassination. They would endure death. But it would be all worth it. He said it would be. And I believe Him. I believe that this truly is going to be our finest hour. I think we're going to see some great fruit as a result of our labors. It will be because it must be. It will be because we want it to be. And we will work, I know, to make it our finest hour. It's a pleasure for each of us to work with such a faithful congregation. Not all congregations of the Lord's people are so lucky and fortunate as we are here. And I believe, just as Churchill was proud of his England, we are proud of our congregation of the Lord's people. And that will make this our finest hour. It's going to be because of the finest salvation, the finest service, all founded in the finest study of the greatest book that has ever been delivered to mankind. Let today be our finest hour. If you've not obeyed the gospel, 
do that. Make this our finest hour. If you have, you've become unfaithful for some reason. Repent of those things in whatever way necessary, publicly or privately. But either way, make this your finest hour as we stand and as we sing.